of Fun Boat Diplomacy, recording from San Francisco at No Matter What co-working space, and I'm here today with Mohamed Morsi. Welcome. Hi. You want to introduce yourself a little bit to the podcast audience? Yeah. Uh, my name is Mohamed. I originally come from Egypt. I've been traveling through South America for the past few months and decided to pop up here and visit a buddy of mine for Thanksgiving uh, in Santa Cruz and got to meet... Uh, Everybody at the hostel uh, we're staying at, uh, Pacific Fragrance, and just had a great time and decided to come back. Mm. Where were you? Oh, you went to Santa Cruz. Yeah. Okay. And how was that? Uh, it's pretty quiet. I was expecting more, but I think it's Thanksgiving weekend, so kind of like people go back to their families and homes. And, uh, so this, the beaches were quite empty. I was expecting more beach volleyball and stuff like that, mm. but it looked like it's a great time to, to hang out and Lots of surfers, definitely lots of sea lions. It's crazy. My impression is that it's it's a small, yeah, small place. Yeah, I think it's sixty thousand inhabitants. Yeah, okay. inhabitants. That's the, the sign says. So I would expect it to be quiet, even if it wasn't Thanksgiving. But I, I hear they get a lot of tourism just for the surfing. Okay. Like for the beach and the surfing, they have mm-hmm. like a huge amusement park right on the beach. Uh-huh. Okay. So it's pretty sweet setup they have there. Okay, and what were you doing in San, uh, in uh, South America? Where were you? Uh, I flew into San Jose, Costa Rica, and just uh, made my way south through Panama and Colombia. And I'm, when I go back now, I'm probably going to continue on down to Ecuador, just uh, mixing it up between mountains and hiking, or just beach towns or cities every now and then, and uh, trying to get new ideas and meet new people, because I would like to open up my own hostel mm. uh, when I get back to Germany where I live. and. So just gathering. Where do you want to open one? Uh, in Cologne. In Cologne. Yeah, in Germany. Okay. Um, are there a lot of hostels already in Cologne? Or no? Yeah, I think there are about maybe 10. That's it? More or less. In Cologne? Yeah. That's not a lot, actually. 10, which at least come up on like the, mm-hmm. the hostel websites, uh, like Hostel World and stuff. Uh, two, which are really, I would consider more competition if I would open one, because mm-hmm. like, they're focusing on the same kind of target group and so but they're usually fully booked so if you try to book in you know in advance so there's a demand there is definitely a demand i mean cologne is a huge tourist uh, spot or destination which is kind of incognito not a lot of people hear about it from outside europe but inside europe people know it tell me about cologne i've never been there i've been around germany but i've never gotten around to going to cologne it's got a million people so it's perfect size you know you can be anonymous if you want to if you want to be, just walk around town. Nobody knows you. You can also, if you go to a Christmas market or something, then you run into people you know. So you have also this familiar uh, feeling, which is nice. Um, and it's got three very interesting scenes, even the fourth one coming in now. So you have the whole student scene, international students from all over Europe and the world, uh, lots of Erasmus students. It's got, I think, Europe's biggest um, sport university for sport, like athletics. So get a lot of interesting people coming in for that as well so you have this whole student scene and you have i think it was europe's biggest gay scene as well in cologne and lots of activity there and then you have like the old traditional you know they call it kush tradition with their own accent their own beer their own traditions like the carnival you know they call it the fifth season you know the four seasons and then there's carnival season and you have the you know the dome the church there the 
which is also very very uh, impressive. It's, it's massive. Huge. Yeah, it's huge. I, I saw pictures like um, it almost looks like it's been blown up. Like, yeah. Uh, in size, it just doesn't look proportionally correct <laughs> to the rest of the city. It's kind of similar to the one in uh, Milano, but I think it's bigger even. And it's right at the main train station, so you know, it's you get out of the train and you just see this mm -hmm. huge thing. It's it's definitely impressive. And you have this fourth kind of scene coming in now, which is kind of like the refugee scene. Mm -hmm. Germany's taken a lot of refugees um, the past few months, and Cologne is one of the cities which is kind of used as a hub. Well, the refugees would come in and then they'd be distributed to other cities. So that's definitely picking up the scene where lots of people, you know, going to the train stations, waiting for the refugee trains, giving them food, uh, doing activities with them and stuff. So all these different scenes combined make a very, very interesting, eclectic and eccentric mix of activities every day, you know, sounds, uh, sights and stuff. It's, it's really cool. It was very strange that I missed it because I've gone everywhere, a lot of places in Germany, but I kind of neglected. It is in, in North Rhine-Westphalia. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I kind of neglected that area. But that's the why. biggest province in all of Germany. Yeah. That population I, is. I don't know why. I just kind of feel like West, West Germany <laughs> is a little bit less interesting than the East. But um, anyway, uh, what are some, are there other things to see in Cologne as outside of the, the, the cathedral or is yeah it's more uh, so they like if you're talking about just you know tourist sites and stuff I guess the dome is the biggest one you have a few wall old walls like city walls here and there and you can go on a few walking tours to hear some stories the carnival is definitely something to see yeah, here that's what people what people go for yeah, a lot of the times carnival, the carnival yeah and there's lots of like parks and you know lakes you can go swimming you can do it's it's very good to live there like quality of life tourist touring wise I think if you go in the summer you have a great time everybody's out and about and you don't you don't need to see anything you just people watch the whole day mm -hmm. it's so many different scenes and it's nice to see like how people interact with each other uh, and it's very close to other big cities so it's a good hub you know you can stay there at the base and then you can. It's like one hour to Aachen, which is a huge, mm -hmm. uh, one of the oldest cities in Europe. It's two hours to Brussels. It's, uh, I think, four hours to Paris, two hours to Luxembourg. So you're in the middle of it all. That's a cool thing about it. Yeah, I was uh, I was actually supposed to study in Münster. <coughs> ah, that's a really nice town. Yeah, right? yeah it's really cool. I, I didn't end up doing that. but uh, It's just had, full of bikes. Yeah, had, had I, just bikes. Had I, had I uh, studied in Münster... Um, this, the way that the German educate university system works is uh, with your student ID. That's your pass, and it's your pass for um, all transportation in the state that you're studying in. Yeah, exactly. So I would have been able to go to um, to Cologne yeah. for free. Uh, it also went um, into the first town in uh, in the Netherlands. Exactly. You know, yeah. right? So I kind of wish that's that's <laughs> one reason I, I kind of regret not regret. I, I I don't regret actually, not during that semester, but that would have been really cool to go to all the places in North Rhine-Westphalia for free. Yeah. I, I studied in Berlin, and that's kind of, um, they kind of cheat you a little bit. It's like, yeah, you get to travel, but only in Berlin, because Berlin itself is a it's state. Huge. It's huge. <laughs> yeah. but so, like, to go to Potsdam, I had to pay, because that's in Brandenburg. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, yeah, I mean, Münster is a really nice town as well. Mm -hmm. So it's also, I think it's two hours from Cologne, it's really nice. So many beautiful lakes there, mm -hmm. just in the woods, you know, you're walking in the woods and all of a sudden this huge lake, yeah. which 
or something. I think it would be a really cool place to live. To visit. Yeah. I visited um, in November last year, just around this time in November. And it was fucking cold. <laughs> yes, Germany is pretty miserable um, in the winter and cold. Yeah. Winter. But in the fall, it's really nice. Well, you have to make it work. That's the thing. I've been living in Germany now for nine years. Mm-hmm. And I was I had the miserable years in the beginning. Mm. But now, in the winter, if it's raining or whatever, you really just, just have to accept it. And you know what? You're going to get wet for... <laughs> what, 10, 15 minutes till you get there. But once you're there, you're going to have a great time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I dance salsa, and in Cologne, you can dance salsa every night. Yeah. And the scene there, I mean, we're, we're in San Francisco here. We went to a salsa night last week. Might go again tonight, but there weren't that many people dancing. In Cologne, it's huge. I mean, San Francisco is a lot bigger than Cologne. Germans can fucking more. dance. <laughs> they want to. Yeah. 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 There's lots of, I mean, it's because it's this eccentric mix as well. Like, you have lots of different nationalities. So you go there and you will dance with Puerto Ricans, you'll dance with Mexicans, you'll dance with lots of nationalities along the side, the Germans, of course, but it's cool, it's really cool. So it's a diverse city as well, huh? Yeah, so in the winter you just have to, you know, get your ass out of your chair and just... Just go party. Go party or go do whatever, watch a movie, lots yeah, of poetry slams are happening, it's nice. nice. Do you think it's because it's so cold, people are like, we gotta fucking party? <laughs> <laughs> point. But they But they do that in, they do it when it's warm too, I don't know. I think yeah. Americans don't know how to party as well. They can, yeah. but it's not as uh, it's not as big as a thing in, as in Europe. That might be true. I haven't partied here too much. Uh, somehow, whenever I've been here, it's been kind of low season. Mm. So maybe I'm not uh, the luckiest when it comes to. Well, if you want to party, just yeah. wait till you get back to Europe or <laughs> elsewhere. Just go elsewhere. <laughs> Argentina, man, they can party. In Argentina. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. They start late, also. Like they start at three a.m. Party. Okay, I you thought it was club. I thought it was crazy in Europe where it's like no, two o'clock. No. You get to the club. That's pretty, pretty late. But. You go to a club at two. It's empty in Argentina. Yeah, until at like three it gets busy. And <laughs> people start leaving, going home at like six, eight. Yeah, that's cool. That's crazy. Um, what what do you do in uh, in Cologne at the moment? Uh, at the moment, nothing. So I used to work uh, with like the big telecom operators, Vodafone, T-Mobile. Mm-hmm. Last uh, last job I had was with Oracle. Okay. Um, but I uh, I was doing a master's besides work, so I jumped on a chance that they were letting people go and just made a good deal with Oracle and you know took the money and just worked on my master's, finished that. What's your master's in? It's in web science. It's kind okay. of like a new discipline about mm-hmm. uh, the internet and what impacts different disciplines around it. Pretty cool. So, so, is it a proper like science, or is it the yeah, social side of it? It's a master of science. It's a master of science, uh, and you do like the programming part as well. You do get into the programming as well, not as deep as other like computer yeah, science. As yeah, computer science major, but mm-hmm. you you also kind of look at like media psychology or ethics, or that kind of, these kind of topics. Uh, design. It's, really cool. it's pretty interesting. At the University of Cologne. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was at the University of Applied Sciences in Cologne. Um, so I finished that, and now I'm traveling a bit, and then hoping when I get back to start this project. What's uh, your project with the hostel? Yeah. What made you come up with that idea that you wanted to? Do? Uh, I was traveling last year also through South America, um, and one of my lifetime dreams has been to have an equal lodge on a beach somewhere. Mm-hmm. I was just like on one of these longer bus rides, thinking about okay, how can we make this happen, or, and then. It, I kind of realized, okay, you probably need to start small. You can't just, you know, it's expensive. You can't just have a spot on the beach somewhere. 
and build a for that and then start it up and if it were, maybe you could but I don't have the money for that and I wouldn't know where to start so mm-hmm. I thought about maybe make like starting small and that's where I started to think okay maybe start with a hostel just get into the field of tourism in general and uh, see how you like it first and if it works out you know then maybe expand and sell the business and then look for a spot on the beach somewhere did you get some inspiration from your travels in South America at all? Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, what kind of what kind of hostels do they have? So, um, a lot of them have because it's cheaper mm-hmm. to have like property there. Uh, a lot of people, especially expats who go there, like would buy the house or the place, and then turn that into a hostel so that they they own it, and it cuts on costs like massively. Um, uh, but yeah, a lot of the places I saw were bigger. Uh, they had like a they would have like an open space for you know uh, like a, a courtyard in the middle of the hostel and just people hanging out and like um, uh, hammocks and stuff everywhere so and the, you know that also the climate allows for that temperature is great you can spend half the day outside even all day outside so um, I saw some very cool hostels the vibe was great but so far they hadn't really been feasible for me in Cologne like. I'm not going to be able to afford such a big place, definitely. And um, even if I would, I wouldn't, you know, the weather doesn't allow for spending half the time outside in the open air. So that's what I liked about the Pacific Tradewinds Hostel where we're here. It's it's really just, a, you know, it's an apartment. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it really looks like an, an apartment, but they've changed it in a way that it's still, that it works as a hostel as well. And that's, for me, more feasible, more realistic. And that's why I decided to come back and check out more how things were done because yeah. it it gave me kind of hope ah maybe I can do this yeah. uh, maybe there is kind of a simple way to do it that I don't need to you know break down walls and set up like massive showers like stalls of showers and like no it's simple it's simple and yeah. it works and that's what I that's what kind of uh, brought me back here mm. it's cool did, did you learn a lot about it from Courtney yeah we had a long talk yesterday and um, that a little bit more tomorrow or today if she has time. So you're thinking just get a uh, sort of an apartment building in yeah. Cologne? Yeah, because she was telling me how that hostel started. It was just one, it was even just one floor. Oh yeah? And uh, the owner would, he's renting as well, he's leasing, so mm-hmm. he doesn't own it. Yeah. Which is even perfect, kind of more similar to the model that I would do. And he lives, or so he had his bed above the reception, yeah. where the reception is, he had a bed up there. Mm-hmm. And he would just do the whole, you know, reception thing cleaning everything himself and then there's sleep up there for the first few years <laughs> that's cool but that worked and it grew yeah yeah and yeah. maybe so what do you think about in in germany though the the um laws might be a little more strict yeah they have definitely more regulations there yeah. uh i think the bigger one or the more challenging one is i think if you have more than 11 people living in one space mm-hmm. you need to exit you need two ways mm-hmm. to be able to exit that space yeah and that's where it's going to get tricky. So I might maybe need to, I have to do, like, do the math and the business case and everything to see if it, I can make it work with just 11 people mm-hmm. to start. And, you know, the more people, the better vibe, obviously, you have more atmosphere, but, but then it gets more expensive. Maybe get two different flats. And you really want to do it in Cologne? Yeah. I mean, it's a great city. There's yeah. so much, it has so much to offer. And it gets a lot of tourism. I mean, you have yeah. lots of exhibitions. Gamescom is in Germany, is in Cologne, you know? Mm-hmm. 
it gets all these big exhibitions where people come in. Definitely, there's a market. I put my flat up on uh, Airbnb, mm-hmm. and I get like at least ten requests a month for like either a weekend or a longer period. Mm-hmm. And I I didn't put it cheap. Like I, it was actually one of the more expensive ones on there. But still, there's demand. Mm-hmm. Um, well, now I'd like to pivot. Again, right. to back to South America, I want to hear more about that. Uh, how does one go about just going to South America? Is like, you, can you just speak English, or do you need to know Spanish? Or, or? Uh, Spanish helps. I don't know too much Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I look a bit uh, Latino, so people expect <laughs> me to know Spanish. I disappoint a lot of people there. I get the look of you know, we don't believe you. You're probably just you know born outside of. Mexico or wherever I am, and, <laughs> and your parents didn't give you, you know, put in enough effort to teach you the language. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I try to explain to them that I'm, I'm from Egypt, you know, we speak Arabic, we don't really have Spanish there, but uh, I still get the disappointed looks. So, Spanish helps, definitely. There's no questions asked, but uh, I've met a lot of people who don't speak any Spanish, just like, you know, the gracias and the sí, you know, just the simple stuff, and they're they're doing fine. Even when I first started traveling last year in South America, I didn't have any Spanish and it was fine. Um, because, you know, especially if you're more on like the backpacker trail, you always have other tourists around you or travelers around you who so speak you, Spanish yeah, and English so they can help you out. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely doable. So And it's cheap. That's the cool thing about South America. I mean, compared to here, uh, prices for hostels, you're talking about like $8 a night. It's... You even get cheaper, if, depending on the country. So Bolivia was cheaper. Uh, maybe Argentina is a bit more expensive. Which one was your favorite? I really like Peru. Peru is perfect. I really want to go to Peru. Yeah, it's got like all the history, you know, like uh, the Incas and Machu Picchu and all these sites to see, but it also has nature. Great food, definitely quite cheap. Their accent is not so difficult to understand, Spanish mm. accent. Um, yeah, Peru is really cool. Uh, also, ayahuasca ceremonies. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't done it, but that's a reason to go down. Uh, but they do that in lots of places. So in Colombia, yeah, they do that as well. As well yeah. But yeah, Peru is also famous for it. It's true. Yeah, I saw uh, an episode. I think it was Anthony Bourdain. And he, mm. he had an episode in Peru, and the food just looks out of this world. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I agree. I mean, it's, it's like Mexico, for example, is nice, but I didn't find it too... I didn't find too much variety in the food. It was just... I mean, the essence of it is a tortilla with something on it. And then depending on the size of the tortilla, how it's, if it's, you know, toasted or not, it gets a different name. Enchilada, jenga, burrito, <laughs> quesadilla. It's all a tortilla. But it's all thing. the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Peru, they have, like, just different things. You have your quinoa-based meals. You have your fish-based meals. You have, like, soups. It's, it's really nice. I had the best sandwich of my life in, in Peru. What was it like? It was called Asada de Res at this place called La Lucha in Lima. And it haunts me still. Like I had, <laughs> That day I had four of them. Oh my god. Like, what, what was it? What was in it? It had kind of like a roast beef, but I think it was like barbecued roast beef. I don't know how they did it, but it was very juicy at the same time. It had like smoky flavor, caramelized onions, so like a fried egg, melted cheese. But everything was just worked, you know? That reminds me of uh, in Portugal, in Porto, in north, northern Portugal, they have this thing called a franzazinha, and it's kind of like that. Yeah. But it's uh, 
it's a motherfucker to eat. It's <laughs> it's so massive. Once you get halfway, you're like, oh my god, I have another half to eat. But yeah, they love it. I was like, I think one in my lifetime was okay. It's delicious, but it's just so. Uh, yeah. It's such a task to eat it all. I don't know. You had four, so it must be more doable. Yeah, you know, it was it was doable. It was definitely doable. It was like the size of a cheese, like a, a cheeseburger or something, or a Big Mac. It wasn't huge, but it was just the right, you mm. know, the right ingredients, yeah. and it worked. And I mean, we had two for breakfast. I had already had breakfast at the hostel because it was included. But my it was really funny because my first night in Peru, Lima, or in South America in general, I get into the hostel and I wake up the next day, and there's only one person in the dorm. And he's Egyptian. What? <laughs> and, you know, Egyptians, we don't really travel yeah. much. And if we do, it's more to the U.S. or to Europe, mm-hmm. not really to Peru. So it was really like a weird, random uh, experience. But he was there for the day, so, you know, I had breakfast at the hostel, and he decided to skip that and go have breakfast at this place. Mm-hmm. So I ate with him there again, and we loved it. And we walked around town and decided, okay, what do we do for dinner? Get that shit it's again. More. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what's the, what's the, is breakfast usually included in, uh, in, in the hostels that, in South America? I would say, America? yeah, most of them. Yeah. Uh, what does that include? So this past, yeah, the past few hostels that I was at had been mainly pancakes, especially in Panama. Panama, mm-hmm. they do, like a lot of hostels do pancake breakfast. They like prepare the batter and you, it's just next to the stove and you, you prepare your own pancakes. Basically. Oh, okay. So you just, uh, bread, uh, cook them whenever you need them. Mm-hmm. Um... Other hostels kind of mix it up, sometimes eggs, sometimes. It was a really cool hostel in Mexico City, for example. They did fruit one day, like fruit in the quesadilla. The next day would be uh, cereal and just toast. And then third day would be also something like fruit and a different kind of quesadilla, just with tomato sauce on it. But, But they had like these sweet old ladies who actually can speak English. It was really weird, like Mexican old ladies, but they yeah, still you don't speak some English yet. Yeah. Um, and they were really nice. Fresh shoes. A lot of fresh shoes in South America. Because the fruits there are very cheap, you know? Like mm-hmm. a lot of variety and a lot of good fruits, definitely. And it's cheap, so you get like all these fresh juices, all the fresh fruit for peanuts. Mm-hmm. And um, people don't like hold back when it comes to mm-hmm. uh, breakfast and stuff like that. And... Uh, I've heard that it's uh, it's difficult for vegetarians. I'm not a vegetarian, but it is it's a lot of meat, and it's all it's, delicious. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely more challenging for them. Uh, I was traveling for a bit um, with a few vegetarians, and we would then end up cooking more than eating out. So the hostel is just uh, making pasta and making it. That's pretty lame. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's also kind of fun, it adds to the ho- to the atmosphere in the hostel. So we had this one experience in uh, Santa Catalina in Panama. It was this like surfer town, lots of surfers there, and we've been cooking for a few nights. And then the last night we got everybody together and we made this huge feast. It was really cool. Like all vegetarian? No, we had some like meat for the. I mean, surfer is also like more fish, so they needed their energy. So we made like chicken, but then we made. They have this thing called, uh, what's it called? It's not like potatoes, it's something, it's yuca, it's called yuca. And it's kind of like a root. And we made like a mash of yuca and like 
bunch of other stuff, rice and paella rice and stuff like that. But it was like really nice because there was a pool at the hostel. We put it on the tables and some lights and all everybody from the hostel, even the workers, just joined in. It was really really nice dinner together. Mm-hmm. So like cooking in the hostel adds to the atmosphere definitely. I mean, it's not exciting as exciting as eating at you know at a street food part outside, but you know it can be also a lot of fun. That's what we did here, right? The Thanksgiving dinner, for example, that was a lot, a lot of fun. Yeah, just meals. We didn't cook together, but... <laughs> yeah, but meals in general together. Yeah. Were, uh, I think that's that's something I haven't thought about in a while, but I, I used to... Back in college, I came to this weird um, theory that if if everybody in the world sat down and had a meal with somebody with, with every other culture in the world, then there would be no wars. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, man. You guys make delicious shit. I don't want to bomb you. <laughs> like if 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 all, if all the American soldiers had a bowl of pho before going off to fight in Vietnam, they they'd be like, no 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 wait wait, wait. let's think about this first. Well, that is kind of what happened, you know. That's kind of what happened back then. You know, the original Thanksgiving story. Oh yeah, I mean, they did they, they did the they exchange. thought it was delicious and they're like, let's take this shit. <laughs> <laughs> they did do the exchange of culture before the gen- gen- oh man, they're such assholes. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. We. Uh, we still celebrate Columbus Day and Thanksgiving, and um, and meanwhile they're complaining that the Washington Redskins should change their names. <laughs> it's like, but it's okay to celebrate genocide. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fucked up. You went to that uh, to that uh, the thing on Alcatraz. Thing on Alcatraz huh? yeah, 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 yeah. For those who don't know or don't don't read my blog, I put it up already. Uh, it's a uh, so here in San Francisco, every um, every Thanksgiving in the morning, I got up at three for this, but it was started at like so it starts at like four or five in the morning. The ferry left at four fifteen, I think. Our ferry it goes to Alcatraz, and the, it's a gathering of indigenous people from around the world. Oh, from around the world. Yeah, so it's mostly Native Americans, but um, they also had uh, Aborigines from. Yeah, they had uh, Maoris from uh, from New Zealand. Oh, okay. That was amazing. Oh, cool. Like they said that they said we have guests Maoris from New Zealand. I was like, this is gonna get really real, <laughs> and it was. It was really amazing. Um, and then uh, um, Aztec dancers, like from oh, Mexico, wow. and that was the last one. It was two hundred Aztec uh, dancers, and they. All came out with their huge feathered headdresses and their burning herbs and incense. And um, right as the sun was, um, it really became morning when they were dancing. So they danced the sun into the sky, and there's 200 of them. And the, the light was coming through their feathers and all the smoke from the burning stuff. It was so incredible. It sounds intense. I'm surprised that they like actually organized that. I mean, they managed to organize, you know, the Aztec dancers and the Maoriyans. Yeah, all at the same time. All at the same time for this one thing. Yeah, it's amazing. Two hundred dancers. Two hundred. Yeah, they just kept coming. We were all in a circle around a fire, and then they, as they entered, they kept filling it in, filling it in, and they just kept coming and coming. <laughs> oh my God, there's so many of them. Yeah, really great. Well, what did you do for Thanksgiving? Um, we just had the classic dinner with uh, with my my buddy's uh, parents-in-law, so we were just kind of. Have you have you had Thanksgiving before? I know this is the first. No, time. this is kind of the first. So which of the dishes is your favorite for Thanksgiving? Um, I kind of like the stuffing and gravy. The stuffing mix. is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's my favorite as well. Uh, and what is your opinion on turkey? Yeah, I like... I'm not a big fan of it, the way it's cooked for Thanksgiving. Like, yeah. 
but I would eat it in a in like an Indian dish. Like I cook, I like to cook, and I do a lot of Indian stuff. And oh, yeah. Sometimes I use turkey instead of chicken or like beef, and it works there really well. It works better, or yeah, I think so even yeah. um, because it's usually tends to be dry. Mm-hmm. I have a sense that it absorbs the, uh, flavors. the flavors yeah. more, and so it's uh, it's very nice. I also like to mix that up with uh, couscous. Oh yeah. So like mixing up the Indian cuisine with North African, mm-hmm. and it's uh, interesting there. Yeah, definitely. That's yeah, cool. I wanna, I'm gonna go to Egypt. Is that possible now? It's, it's definitely, definitely possible. You're just gonna get a lot of um, like people trying to sell you stuff because there aren't many tourists. Yeah. And so. Or you, you get more attention. You weren't. You've been in Germany for nine years, right? So you weren't. Uh, you've been away for a while. Yeah, I I go back three times a year. Three times a year. Yeah, okay. that's the cool thing about Germany. It's very it's close as well. Yeah. It's close to like a lot of like countries. You know? It's a four-hour flight. Sometimes I go for a longer weekend. It's like a four-day weekend. So oh yeah. It's it's enough. In Cairo. Or? In Cairo. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you three tell me you, every day you'd see the pyramids. Yeah, you go to on the school. way to school, the That's pyramids insane. on the way. Yeah, so how was it growing up in Egypt? When you, you when was that uh, when you were like, going to school as a kid? Um, Just so we can get a... Early 90s. Early 90s. Yeah. So still, I don't know what was going on in the 90s in Egypt. It was, we made it to the World Cup. Okay. <laughs> the last time we made it was 1990, so mm-hmm. that was a big thing. It's been, what, 20... Five years now, mm-hmm. people are kind of disappointed by the soccer, the soccer team, not making it to the World Cup again. But yeah, it was uh, it was actually quite a simple childhood. Like uh, times were e- a lot, you know, things were a lot easier back then, much more simpler or much simpler, and but also not as interesting. I mean, I like I like the change that happened now, even though with all the you know the bad events that you hear about every now and then, and like all the terrorism and stuff. But still, I do like the change. Um, I think our parents, they've kind of been through a war. Um, and that's why they didn't really want change. They wanted stability. Even if that meant kind of an oppressed, an oppressed stability, but still they wanted the, the stability. And then our generation kind of grew up more with like the whole uh, globalization and you know, media Wanting so to take you, a step forward. You see what other countries have achieved, and you know you hear all these great things about your ancestors. You know the pharaohs seven thousand years ago, all these great achievements. And you wonder, you know, what went wrong? I mean, there's why, you know, why why are the streets like the way they are? Why are people the way they are? They are, and and you want to do something better for your country, definitely. You want to see that people are, you know, can live with dignity. And that's kind of how things slowly started. There was definitely a lot of activity in the blogosphere before the revolution, like years before. Lots of videos on YouTube, scandals and stuff like that. But um, I wasn't I, I wasn't there for the for the actual revolution. I just started a new job with T-Mobile in Germany, so it was my first month. I remember it was January, and then this whole thing started like January twenty fifth. I was just refreshing, you know, Facebook and all the the media, the social media sites, 24-7 trying to find out, you know, streaming Al Jazeera on my phone, not really working, my boss kind of understood yeah. <laughs> that something was happening and just wanting to, you know, trying to, at least if I can't be there to share information so that people know what's happening on the ground, and uh, it was crazy, I mean, I remember 
I wouldn't really sleep, and I just, you know, these people are out there on the street, and you could see, like, green laser beams of, I remember those, that was crazy, crazy times, and, uh, and actually, you know, people say a lot of things about Al Jazeera, and, like, the, the finance by Qatar, and, sure, there's a lot of conspiracy theories, but I really do appreciate the, the coverage of those nights, because if there wasn't a live camera on the people in the uh, Tahrir Square on those nights, something would have happened, something bloody would have happened. Oh, I, I love Al Jazeera. I actually get a lot of news from Al Jazeera in Russia today, which is like, <laughs> yeah, <I don't laughs> kind of I mean, weird, right? But um, they, they cover that stuff. They cover the stuff that uh, CNN's not I'm sure cover. they cover it with their own angle as well, own perspective, which, you know, they're entitled to. If they own mm -hmm. the channel, they can, exactly. you know, media has always been biased anyway. And it will always be biased. But just stepping out of that, there's a live picture of what's happening there. And that's mm -hmm. cool. Nobody can do anything. Nobody can touch these people without the world seeing it. And that's really helped mm -hmm. push things forward. And people got more and more. And then they did all the stupid stuff, you know, like cutting the uh, mobile telephone connectivity on the people on the streets. And then more people went out because they wanted to know what's happening to their children, you know? Mm -hmm. They can't call them now anymore. So everybody so they, comes. Yeah. So it's it's just a friend of mine. Actually, it's funny. This buddy that I was visiting now for Thanksgiving, he used to work also at a, one of the operators. And he actually got the like the order to Cut disconnect wow. BlackBerry service. And he did because it's kind of his job. And if he wouldn't have done it, someone else would have done it. He did that, and then he went out on the streets. Oh. <laughs> like it's you know it's it's also this kind of thing with Egypt as well it's a lot of contradiction that's that's kind of like when I uh, I was working as an intern for the Department of Defense yeah um, at the National Defense University are you allowed summer. to talk about this I am allowed to talk about this <laughs> nothing was top secret or classified but I was working for them uh, and uh, I had studied um, what the NSA was doing before um, in school uh, that the semester before but that summer I was working for DOD and um that's when Edward Snowden ah. released, uh, well, him and Glenn Greenwald started uh, covering um, what the NSA was doing. And on the 4th of July in the um, uh, summer of uh, 2013, uh, while working for DOD, went to an anti-NSA rally uh, <laughs> in Washington, D.C. It's kind of like that. Like you can do your job, but also yeah. express um, your uh, disagreement with authority. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, it's a lot of uh, Egypt is also full of a lot of contradictions. You see people like, you know, trying handing out food to the poor, you know, uh, but then throwing out the trash on the street. Mm. Like, what are you doing? Are you doing a good thing? But then you know, making the street dirtier for the people who live on the streets, the poor. You're giving the food. Like it's, it's just full of contradictions, uh, which makes it interesting, but also. And the rest of your family is still in Egypt? Yeah, so I have, uh, my parents are there, one brother as well, another brother, my, so we're three, uh, our middle brother is in Germany. Mm -hmm. And also in Cologne? Uh, no, in Dusseldorf. Dusseldorf, oh, close. Not too far. That's pretty close. Yeah, but I go back every time. And I actually like the shorter trips when I'm in Cairo. Just, you know, just enough so that you kind of want to stay longer, and then you leave, so you kind of want to come back. Yeah. If you stay like over a week for me at least, okay, I want to go back now to Germany. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm leaving because I want to leave, which is. That's how it's like for me at home. I yeah. always I always stay longer, and then I 
I never want to go home. I never really have this urge to go go back home. But so it's not Cairo. Uh, it's a place called Hocassin, Delaware. Really okay. boring little town in Delaware. Um, and I never really feel like oh, I'm itching to go home. Cairo, I mean, Cairo's Cairo is cool. It's a nice thing to do. Yeah, but I mean, also, your friends change, people, things change. Yeah. You know? like, all of them work now, so when I go during the week, there's nothing to do yeah. during the day because exactly. everybody's at work. So. Exactly. You just kind of chill. Well, have, do your friends have interesting jobs at least? Different things. Um, so a lot of them just take the classic route of, you know, Vodafone yeah. or whatever. Uh, a friend of mine has a kind of a startup. It's called itcinema.com, which is kind of like an IMDb, but for Arabic oh, media. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, they got a few backers, big like TV company uh, organizations, like satellite TV television mm-hmm. organizations behind them. And now they're thinking of what to do next. Um, so yeah, there are a few kind of smaller startups, things like people who do things with uh, CrossFit now, or like just marathons, setting up marathons, kite surfing, a lot of kite surfing camps opening up because there's lots of wind in Egypt. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, uh, especially from Europe, they come down during the winter season to to windsurf and kite surf. So it's also a pretty big scene. Yeah, some people are in, have more interesting jobs than others. Lots of restaurants, lots of like cupcake places. And <laughs> That's cool. Huh? <laughs> I wouldn't imagine cupcakes <laughs> in Egypt. Yeah, people, it's like a lot of the cities where you have, you know, this influence coming in from the world, the world, and then the richer class kind of focusing on that. Oh, okay, we make cupcakes, everybody makes they cupcakes. Wanna, they want to enjoy those things But then too. everybody makes cupcakes, you know, and then it's, <laughs> and it's not special anymore. Yeah. And then everybody makes, I don't know what the next trend will be. Ah, the next trend is actually like Egyptian street food, but made in a gourmet fashion. Uh, okay. So you're paying like 10 times or even 20 times for as much the same as thing. for the same thing, the exact same thing. <laughs> they have that here also at Haight-Ashbury. You can get a you can get a burrito for, I mean, it's the same price as a, it's a little bit pricier. It's small, it's like a smaller burrito, quality of the ingredients is higher, I think. But all the same, it's just, they made the facilities nicer and they sell you a more expensive burrito. Yeah. Or even with fruits, one this one place. Uh, so in Egypt we have sugarcane. Yeah. These stalks of sugarcane, and if you buy it from a, like a, if you go to like one of those street juice vendors or just even like a, a guy selling fruit in the market, if you buy one, maybe like the whole stalk will be, let's say one pound. But if you go to the that that restaurant, you buy it in a small package already cut up and washed, of course. But it's maybe a fifth of a stalk. And it's like ten pounds. You use pounds in Egypt? Yeah, Egyptian pounds. Okay. With the British there. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah, this goes all the way back. Also during the war, I remember playing on Call of Duty <laughs> in <laughs> Egypt. That was really oh really? Cool. Yeah. Call of Duty in Egypt? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the the old ones. Um, oh, you okay. play as the British, and you're doing the big campaigns. I don't know if it got to Cairo. Was there, was there fighting in Cairo? I don't know if you know. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's more like Port Said and other places. Yeah, I think the place is called uh, Alexandria. Al, Al, Alamein or something. Uh, Alamein, yeah. Alamein, yeah. Those yeah, are big levels. That's, I think, where the British... There was like a... Um, I think the Germans, the Italians, and the British were fighting in that area. It's mm-hmm. in the north coast. That's so wild. 
can still go and see like there's lots of there's cemeteries there. I think German cemetery and an Italian one. That would suck so much to fight in Egypt. <laughs> it's so hot. <laughs> yeah. And they had like tanks. If you imagine being a tank driver in Egypt, <laughs> that'd be so fucking hot. I bet. Allegedly, it's already really hot in in in, in Europe to be in a tank. But you don't know when they were fighting because in the winter it does get cold up there. Yeah. 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 I think it's it like was rain. it was for years though, so definitely ah, okay. even in the summers. Ah, fuck that. <laughs> and it's near the beach. Yeah. yeah. Cool off, know. cool off in the beach, and then get back in your tank. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I've never. I don't think I've ever seen any pictures of the Second World War where they're chilling at the beach. <laughs> but maybe, maybe who knows? Um, yeah, I mean Italy. I think there was lots of beach towns involved. I would imagine. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? We would have to ask them. Um, have you ever seen the the painting of uh, it's called the Battle of the Pyramids, and it's Napoleon, uh, his battle uh, at in Cairo. No, that, where maybe, is that? maybe we can pull it up. I don't know where it's located. Or who I, painted that? I'm not sure. We can, that's why the internet's great because you can look it up. Is that where it's like him and you see the pyramids and like the Sphinx in the background? Yeah. Yeah, I think I've seen it at some point. Let's take but... a look at that. Holy shit. It's one of the most epic paintings I've ever seen. But I need a review. It's this one. So on Wikipedia, let's visit. Let's see who, who painted this. Some French dude, I guess. Do, do, do. I don't know how to read French. Francois Louis, Louis Joseph. Joseph. There's a lot of names. Oh, it's in 1799. But how crazy is that? This dude, <laughs> Napoleon, who we're seeing. I guess it's this I guy. Down the horse, yeah. yeah. Dude just fighting near the pyramids. These pyramids have seen some shit. Who do you think built the pyramids? <laughs> I think it's definitely. Well, it's not aliens. No. So it's definitely people. It's people. Like too. you see like, the drawings of people. They even discovered now, like. What was it? I think Tutankhamun's um, grave. They discovered that there's like a fake wall, and there's a space behind it. Another, I think it's another uh, tomb or something behind it. And that's what's happening now. They're gonna find out what's in that wall. They think it might be uh, Nefertiti or Cleopatra, or like another huge clue. So what have they never found those two? Yeah. Whoa. They did some, I think, like some sort of X-ray vision, whatever scan, and they found out oh, there's a hollow space behind this wall. It's not a wall. Mm -hmm. How was all the uh, during the revolution? How were the archaeological, like the ancient <coughs> things, uh, protect? Were they protected at all? I think not so much. Uh, I I imagine I even heard that. A lot of artifacts were kind of stolen during that time. Even the, like in the, because the square, the Hamir Square is right on the museum, uh, right next to the museum, okay. the Egyptian museum. So and there the, are tons of artifacts. So in when there. the state's not protecting it, then it's just sort yeah, of open. So I think, actually, even the, the police or the army were using that museum as a base for collecting people they've captured. And there was definitely some vandalism and some robberies that went on during that time. It was just chaos everywhere. Yeah. Like, except for the actual square, but outside the square it was chaos because all like the forces, security forces, were kind of focused on the square. So like malls were, uh, 
vandalized, things were stolen. And some of it, I guess, organized just to keep people afraid and stay at home. Other times, it's just poor people who see a chance and they go for it. Mm -hmm. um, like Black Friday. Like Black Friday. It's <laughs> Egyptian Black Friday. I should yeah. just call it that. <laughs> that's, that's so crazy. We just had Black Friday. I don't know. I didn't see any of it. Um, you didn't see the videos? I've seen the one over. video of the... Um, well, I wasn't there in person. I haven't been there in person in a long time. The thing is, with these videos, you never know if it's, like, actually this year or if it's even Black Friday or, you know? Yeah. It might be somewhere else in the world. You just have no idea. I don't know if you saw, there's this one video of this little girls holding it. Yeah. And then she just comes and just The older woman. It. <laughs> it's so crazy. It reminded me of the video of the reporter with the refugees, the, the one who's tripping. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I wrote about not just her, but it's just, I wrote about the refugee thing back in September. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, she's an idiot. She was part of a right-wing uh, news organization, I think. Ah, okay. And so she was like, it's a good idea to trip them up. Stupid. But it ended up being that the uh, the guy that she tripped with, he was holding the child, they got to Spain. To Spain, to Madrid, there. right? He's doing some football. Coaching, yeah. Coach, yeah. But then there were allegations that he was part of Al-Nusra um, in, uh, in, in Syria. Uh, I don't think that's true, but... So what? I mean, now he's yeah, I mean, rehabilitated. Yeah, so what's what's the, the take on, your take on the refugees? I think it's, the smarter way would have been to definitely accept them with more, like, open arms, because once you give them the sense of security and, like, the, hey, you're welcome, they, if there are any bad apples between them, they would point them out themselves, because, you know, and hey, we know that this guy is... This guy's He's not crazy. with us, you know? <laughs> yeah, who is this dude? <laughs> exactly. So they would kind of help find out the bad apples, rather than just say, okay, now you're all... Yeah, they're not all the same. Yeah. And so... And I think they're the best ones to even, be, like... Yeah, seek out these the, the, the terrorists among them, because mm -hmm. they know... I've never thought they, about it like that. Like, they've traveled, you know... Days and days on foot, on alongside boat, them, alongside everybody, and they know everybody's story. Yeah, and they know like this guy, you know. This guy's kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> have you have you met any of them in Germany? Um, not personally, no. I was, so the whole thing started before I was about to leave, like a few days, like because before it wasn't Cologne; it was a different city that was getting all the refugees. It was first in Munich. Yeah. Yeah. And and so. Like two days before I left for this trip, they had started to come to Cologne. Mm. So that's something I'm considering also when I get back. If the hostel thing takes a bit slower to start, uh, to just do some volunteering because I can speak Arabic and German, mm -hmm. and Perfect. I think they need me like definitely to help out. Well, that'd Either be just like minimum would be just to translate, but maybe just help them out with some of the bureaucracy there, mm -hmm. like paperwork done and stuff. When we think about uh, how <laughs> how it was handled. Uh, early in September, when it was just open uh, to, to come in. I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, was it really open in September? Uh, yeah, beginning of September, it was, um, that's when Angela Merkel said, all refugees, welcome, come in. Yeah, but then they had to get to Germany. Yeah. That was the course, hard part. Of course. So, so going through, uh, like, Greece. Exactly. Um, or even like going Eastern through Europe. Macedonia yeah. and then into um, Hungary and Austria. And it had to be like on a European level that they all say, okay, mm -hmm. we let them in. 
there's still then, there's still no consensus on that yet because Poland doesn't want to take any. I mean, they don't. Yeah, I don't know. For example, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure each country has its own problems. I mean, Egypt, the refugees aren't treated very well either. Um, and you would imagine, you know. Do you know how do you know how they're tr- treated in for like very close proximity countries like Jordan or Lebanon? I think these countries have received a lot of, a lot of refugees so much so that they're not treated that well because it's mm. just you know it is kind of a, a heavy load to to bear and a lot of these countries have their own problems yeah. like Lebanon's got anyway like civil war issues mm-hmm. so. And there, oh, they also have elements of Jordan. Support. Jordan has like you know, Jordan has carried a lot of the load from Palestine. A lot yeah. of Palestinian refugees there, mm-hmm. and now they're getting you know the Syrian refugees. So these countries have been carrying a huge load the whole time. So I, I can imagine that the people kind of are a bit annoyed, and they're not treating the refugees so well. And how do you think about Saudi Arabia then? Shouldn't they? I th- I would say they definitely have the space and the capacity for it. Um, but I don't know, I'm not sure if, if the Syrians would actually enjoy living there. I used to live in Saudi for a bit. Yeah, um, tell me about how was that? <coughs> it's a different vibe. It's, um... Because I have a very distanced opinion, like, because I don't know any, I'm, I'm not, I've never been there. Yeah. I don't like, talk I to so many Saudis. I, so I've only lived there, like, a year. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely have, like, the segregation men and women, so I just, I was hanging out with the Catholic groups. <laughs> Well, you have these, like you have compounds there, and inside the compounds, it's mixed, like where people would live, pools and everything. Um, I wasn't living in a compound; I was living outside in a villa, uh, just financed by the company my dad worked for. And uh, friends would then kind of go to, if you wanted to go party or something, you'd go to like to the embassy area where the embassies were. So they call them embassy parties. That's where you can get like in touch then with. Girls, drugs, alcohol, whatever you needed to. But in general, uh, I've made some very good friends there. Like the whole idea of being segregated or oppressed or builds also bonds, stronger bonds between people because you know there's nothing better to do than to just talk to these guys and chill and hang out and just do stupid stuff all day. And so it builds a stronger bond. So I have some very good friends. Just one year, but I made some very good friendships there. So it's a you know, pro con situation, but it's definitely not the best living environment, in my opinion. It wasn't the best place to hang out. And then, in terms of politics, it's pretty horrible. Yeah, yeah, of course. I, but I was just a, a, like, what was it? Grade ten. I was there for grade ten, so I don't really care too much about politics. Yeah. Right? See, that's the um, that's the demarcation <laughs> that um, a lot of people. It's almost like a, a kind of stereotyping. It's like if you there's a terrible political situation doesn't always mean that living there is because the, the, everyday life is at the end of the day everyday yeah. life so um, but I still have concerns about uh, the oppressive government and then and then it's role in the whole world yeah I mean they do also say you know they say you know if you don't like it you don't have to come here mm-hmm. like it's take it or leave it you can actually you can't go to Saudi Arabia if you wanted to you have to be invited yeah. So, it's not even a place that you can go to find it, find it such a strange place. Yeah. Strange place. But back to the Syrians, I think they're very hard-working people. So I see in Egypt, the Syrians that are there, they have already started projects, you know, restaurants. They're even cooking things at home and just going out on the streets and selling them. 
Like they're not, you know, begging and doing all this. They're really productive. Mm-hmm. And it was actually also a well-known uh, trait about the Syrians in the Arab world that they are very productive people. They're very hardworking people before this whole thing started. So they're not the worst refugees you can get, definitely. Mm. There's also, um, I, I think this was more concerned in September, and it's not, you don't see it pop up so much anymore, but uh, refugees, not maybe not refugees, but people from elsewhere who are tagging along. And, uh, it will happen, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you have this huge, like, marsh of people, and it, it crosses lots of countries, and people will just tag along. Well, it's all very messy, in my opinion. Yeah. It's kind of concerning. But I mean, ref- like, I consider myself a refugee for going to Germany to work, or people who are moving inside a country just for better work, it's kind of like... Well, then, then you have to define it, because... Yeah, exactly. Uh, mm, I would call that a migrant. Or a migrant. Yeah, a refugee, really. It's running a- imminent, imminent yeah. danger. But I mean, people move around all the time. I think a cool thing about Germany as well, why they were so accepting was um, a lot of people, exactly the history. So a lot of them themselves, especially in the West, even in the East, they had been kind of, they wouldn't be called them refugees, they would call them like IDPs, internally displaced people, where Mm -hmm. they needed to leave their homes and go elsewhere within Germany, maybe just. Even after the Second World War, from Eastern Europe. Exactly, from East to West. Like Danzig, what was um, from Danzig, um, now it's part of Poland. Yeah. Uh, they weren't welcome because of the war. And so they have this history and they know what it feels like. And they are kind of uh, reminded of that. And that's why they've been more accepting. You hear stories about people, like especially older, like people who anyway need the company. Like Germany is getting older. They're always looking for people to keep in company. But who are getting people, you know, accepting refugees into their own home and living with them. It's... It's definitely this, like sweet moments that you see on TV and the news when you hear about these things. Yeah. It's actually inspiring. And uh, I so wouldn't expect it because you know the stereotype of a German is cold. Cold. They're not though. They're yeah. really not. They're uh, the way. Actually, the comparison between Americans and uh, Germans is like for Americans, it's so easy to to meet you, but it's to become a really good friend. Um, you, it, it's a lot. It's very easy to be on the superficial outside. Yeah. Uh, and then you don't really make good friends. But with Germans, it's hard to go into the uh, the initial phase. And then, but once you get into that, it takes a long time. Actually, it really takes a really long time with Germans. But uh, once you break that, um, you have a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's also a difference, like, it's all about scale also, what kind of scale you measure it to, the emotional scale, let's say. So, their emotional scale is maybe uh, not as wide as other countries, you know, people excited, really sad, like, whole, whole scale of dramatic expressions. There, it's simpler, it's smaller, but it's still there, it's the same expression. Like, when they're happy, they are really happy inside, it's just they show it a bit differently, mm-hmm. not so loud. And same with, with sadness. And a friend of mine, she works in food flavoring and like in the food industry, and we were talking about this the other day, about how that also reflects in the cuisine. And the German, let's say, the German taste buds or tongue is a very sensitive one. If something has a little bit of sugar in it, they'll say, yeah, it's sweet. Whereas in other countries, like in Italy, where my friend was from, or Egypt, or even here, 
like desserts are very sweet like yeah. there's a lot of sugar and you need that to say ha huh, this is sweet there they don't need so much sugar they need it just a little bit and it's the same with emotions you know it's not so loud it's very simple but it's still there they still taste something that's sweet that's why they're sensitive to there's no spicy food in Germany. yeah exactly they're very sensitive like yeah. salt Can't sweetness when I first got to Germany I couldn't drink tea without sugar now I got used to it my tongue as well in Egypt is just massive amounts of tea yeah because I was in Morocco I was like uh, you're putting a lot of sugar in that man <laughs> <laughs> yeah they have that nice tea there huh? yeah amazing green, green peppermint tea yeah. it's really good hell yeah um, and what's your project you want to explain that your project that we'll be working on later I guess um, so um, it's still kind of new I, I'm, I've been yeah I started a travel blog before this trip it's all my master thesis was about travel blogs so I thought yeah. why not just start one what is what's it called it's called the road mode traveled yeah. oh your name yeah, yeah the road mode traveled yeah we'll and put we'll put a link up on the show notes for those who want cool. to visit that and it was initially just in a you know keep my parents happy and you know, let them know that I'm still alive and I just started posting every Monday about a city that I visited on this trip and one idea that I had before coming was also to learn Spanish well enough to be able to talk to uh, people I meet which hasn't happened <laughs> uh, my Spanish is still not good enough for like a conversation like an interesting conversation just the simple stuff but the idea was to talk about people, uh, to talk to people about their dreams. Um, and it was inspired by different things. So in Peru, I met a guy who would take a photo of a person every day on the street, random, and ask them what, what makes them happy or what happiness means to them or something like that. And that was quite interesting, I found. And then there was another girl in Egypt who did a documentary, just a short documentary, talking to like the poor, uh, less fortunate people on the streets. Uh, about their dreams, you know, what do you dream of? And um, it was surprising to see that a lot of the dreams were very um, yeah, abstract, you know, I dream, a lot of them said they're dreaming of Egypt being the greatest country in the world or of their kids being very successful or, or, or but not really concrete dreams like, you know, I want to own my own business or I want to whatever, which was kind of disappointing for me because you know they feel so oppressed and it's so unrealistic that they'll ever achieve something concrete that they have to dream even bigger and just more abstract because it makes them I don't know feel better I guess um, and so those two combined I thought of meeting people and asking them three questions uh, just mixing up the questions a bit so the first one would be like what do you you know what's what's one of your life dreams your dreams in life and another one would be uh, tell me something that happened to you this week that made you really happy and the third one is more about love and uh, you know your first crush or first love what's the story behind that and the idea is to, sh to, to translate that as well in Arabic and post that up so that the Arabic speaking community can see how people across the ocean live and how similar or different we are I mean, I imagine things like dreams would be a bit different because, you know, maybe here it's more free. You can have a more concrete dream, you know, like I can have my own belly one day or whatever. Um, other things like happiness is just to get a taste of daily life. You know, what, what happened to you this week in your daily life that made you happy? Just to see how these people live in their daily life. 
and the third one is to show kind of more or less that we are kind of similar, you know, first love. Maybe it is your neighbor, maybe it is, you know, the girl at school or the guy or whoever. And just to show that although we could be different in some things, we are similar in other things. That's kind of the idea. But I still am starting it up and just figuring out which questions work best and how to ask them mm -hmm. in a good way. Well, good luck on that, and we'll be yeah. doing that uh, <laughs> right after doing this. So if you want to know the answers to those three questions, you got to go on Mo's project on the road Mo traveled, right? It's going to yeah. be on there. Exactly. Okay. On. How many have you done already? Uh, you're going to be the second, but I haven't posted any yet. So I'm still collecting. So I'm going to collect first because okay. I need to translate that. A uh, friend of mine is collaborating with me. He's doing the Arabic bit. Oh, okay. Because he can write better in Arabic. Got it. More interesting. So I'm just collecting personalities now, interesting people that I meet, talking to them, and then once I have like maybe 15, I'll start posting one every week, and then continue collecting until we get the ball rolling. Cool. All right. Well, we're running out of time, so I just want to thank you for being on Fun Boat Diplomacy. It was fun being here. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and uh, good luck on the rest of your travels. Good luck with your project. And... Maybe we'll see each other on the road again. Yeah, definitely. There's a German saying, it's, you know, you, you always see each other twice in life. So. Twice in life. Maybe more. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks. All right. Thanks, take again. thanks again to Mohamed Morsi for being on the podcast, and thank you all for listening to this episode. It's officially December, and that means Christmas is just around the corner. I know you're all driving out to get wreaths and lights and ornaments candy canes and copies of Fallout 4 for friends and loved ones, but why not stay in the comfort of your own home and order on Amazon? Just go to my website, funboatdiplomacy.com, and on the right-hand side, you'll find a link to my Amazon portal. Just click on the link, shop as you normally would, and Amazon will share a small cut from your total with me to keep Funboat Diplomacy up and running. Thanks, everyone, and remember to subscribe and rate Fun Boat Diplomacy on iTunes, and tune in next week for a new episode.